Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop Podcast. Because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. On October 24, 2009, Lori Moore visited the Lighthouse Writers Workshop for our Inside the Writers Studio program. She read from her novel A Gate at the Stairs, chatted with novelist Eli Gottlieb, and fielded questions from the audience. Let's listen in. I want to begin by saying that I'm not only honored to be here, I'm kind of awestruck to be here seated next to Lori Moore. Her art belongs to that select group of experiences which, when you first have them, mark you so deeply that you always remember where you were at the moment of first impact. You remember the weather. You may even remember the clothes you were wearing. You do this because the work, her work, is so powerfully fresh to the eye and mind that it cuts through the clutter of life and produces that state of deeper recognition we search for in art. We read her to find out how we're doing. We read her to find out how our language is doing. We read her because the humanity of her characters is rendered so persuasively on the page that in the way of great fiction, it enriches us even as it frees us from ourselves. To collect reviewers' epithets of Lori Moore's work is like browsing a catalog of Swiss knives, sharp, flicking, crackly, on target, precise, pinning, crisp, wrenching. And yet such a catalog would be incomplete without, without also mentioning the immense imaginative sympathy the dozen different kinds of funny, and the ear which twirls phrases like a great Bach pianist and gives the impression of having broken down the American sentence to its smallest constituent parts, x-rayed it, and then reassembled it according to a physics all her own. In a career spanning three books of short stories, three novels, and a children's book, she's received a veritable avalanche of recognitions, prizes, and laurels, And in the process, she has become that special thing, the writer's writer par excellence, for good reason. Ezra Pound once said that poetry is news that stays news. What he meant was that a real poem is encased in the hard, shiny capsule of its own originality in such a way that it resists final interpretations and remains permanently fresh. Fiction doesn't usually do that. It's too in debt to the social world of its making, and it tends to age along with the age it represented. But I'm certain that posterity will make an exception in the case of Lori Moore, and that her work will endure among that handful of books which people will continue to read to find out the ways we once talked, fought, and loved one another. The Brits got it at least partly right. A recent headline about her in The Guardian read simply, America's greatest short story writer, Lori Moore. Thank you very much. I don't know if I can go on now after these introductions. I'm going to read a little bit from the beginning of this book, and um, then I'll sit back down, and Eli and I will start drinking. (laughs) 
The book um, begins with the narrator, um, Tassie Kelchin, talking about the year she was 20 and was looking for a job. She's a college student in a university town, and she um, finishes up her semester by going around trying to line up a job for the second semester. And that's where I'm going to begin. And so I needed a job. I had donated my plasma several times for cash, but the last time I had tried, the clinic had turned me away, saying my plasma was cloudy from my having eaten cheese the night before. Cloudy plasma. I would be the bass guitarist. It was so hard not to eat cheese, even the whipped and spreadable kind we derisively called cram cheese because it could be used for sealing windows and caulking tile, had a certain soothing allure. I looked daily at the employment listings. Childcare was in demand. I turned in my final papers and answered the ads. One forty-ish pregnant woman after another hung up my coat, sat me in her living room, and then waddled out to the kitchen got my tea and waddled back in, clutching her back, slopping tea onto the saucer and asking me questions. What would you do if our little baby started crying and wouldn't stop? Or are you available evenings? What do you think of as a useful educational activity for a small child? I had no idea. I had never seen so many pregnant women in such a short period of time. Five in all. It alarmed me. They did not look radiant. They looked reddened with high blood pressure and frightened. I would put them in a stroller and take them for a walk, I said. I knew my own mother had never asked such questions of anyone. Dolly, she said to me once, as long as the place was moderately fire-resistant, I'd deposit you anywhere. (laughs) Will you be in town for Christmas break, the mothers now asked. I sipped at the tea. No, I'm going home, but I will be back in January. When in January? I gave them my references and a written summary of my experience. My experience was not all that much, just the Pitskys and the Schultzes back home. But as experience, too, I had once, as part of a class project on human reproduction, carried around for an entire week a sack of flour, the exact weight and feel of an infant. I'd swaddled it and cuddled it and placed it in safe, cushioned places for naps. But once, when no one was looking, I stuffed it in my backpack with a lot of sharp pens. And it got stabbed. My books, powdery white, the rest of the term became a joke in the class. I left this off my resume, however. But the rest I typed up to gild the lily-livered, as my dad sometimes said. I was wearing what the department stores called a career jacket. And perhaps the women liked the professionalism of that. They were professionals themselves. Two were lawyers. One was a journalist. One was a doctor. One a high school teacher. Where were the husbands? Oh, at work, the women all said vaguely. All except the journalist who said, Good question. (laughs) The last house was a gray stucco prairie house with a chimney cloaked in dead ivy. I had passed the house earlier in the week. It was on a corner lot, and I'd seen so many birds there. Now there was just a flat expanse of white. Two slate steps led in an odd mismatch of rock downward to a flagstone walk, all of which, as well as the grass, wore a light dusting of snow. I laid the first footprints of the day. 
Some desiccated mums were still in pots on the porch. Ice frosted the crisp heads of the flowers. The woman of the house opened the door. She was pale and compact, no sags or pouches, linen skin tied across the bone. The hollows of her cheeks were powdered darkly as if with the pollen of a tiger lily. Her hair was cropped short and dyed the fashionable bright auburn of a ladybug. Her earrings were buttons of deepest orange, her leggings mahogany, her sweater rust-colored and her lips maroonish-brown. She looked like a highly controlled oxidation experiment. (laughs) Come in, she said, and I entered, mutely at first, and then, as always, apologetically, as if I were late, though I wasn't. At that time in my life, I was never late. Only a year later would I suddenly have difficulty hanging on to any sense of time, leaving children, excuse me, leaving friends sitting invariably for a half hour here or there. Time would waft past me undetectably or absurdly, laughably when I could laugh, in quantities I was incapable of measuring or obeying. But that year, when I was 20, I was punctual as a priest. Were priests punctual? I believed somehow that they were. The woman closed the heavy oak door behind me, and I stamped my feet on the braided rug I was standing on to shake off the snow. I started then to take off my shoes. Oh, you don't have to take off your shoes, she said. There's too much of that prissy Japanese stuff going on in this town. Bring in the mud. She smiled, big, theatrical, a little crazy. I had forgotten her name and was hoping she'd say it soon. If she didn't, she might not say it at all. I'm Tassie Kelchin, I said, thrusting out my hand. She took it and then studied my face. Yes, she said slowly, absently, unnervingly scrutinizing each of my eyes. Her gaze made a slow, observing circle around my nose and mouth. I'm Sarah Brink, she said finally. I was not used to being looked at close up, not used to the thing I was looking at looking back. Certainly my own mother had never done such looking, and in general my face had the kind of smooth, round stupidity that did not prompt the world's study. I had always felt as hidden as the hull in a berry, as secret and fetal as the curled fortune in a cookie, and such hiddenness was not without its advantages, its egotisms, its grief-fed grandiosities. Here... Let me take your coat, Sarah Brink said finally. And only then, as she lifted it off me and headed across the foyer to hang it on a hat rack, did I see that she was thin as a pin, not pregnant at all. She led me into the living room, stopping at the large back window first. I followed her, tried to do what she did. In the yard, most of a large oak tree split by lightning had been hacked and stacked by the garage for winter wood. But Sarah was not studying the wood. Oh, for the love of God, look at these poor dogs, she said. We stood there watching. The dogs next door were being kept in the yard by an invisible electric fence. One of them, a German shepherd, understood the fence. But the other one, a little terrier, did not. The German shepherd would get a game of chase going around the yard and lead the terrier right to the electrified border and then stop short leaving the terrier to barrel on ahead into the electricity. The stunned terrier would then come racing back, shrieking with pain. This amused the German shepherd, who continued to do this 
and the shocked terrier, desperate for play, would forget and get started again and barrel on into the electricity again, yowling. This has been going on for weeks, said Sarah. Reminds me of dating, I said. (laughs) And Sarah spun her head to size me up again. I could see now that she was at least two inches taller than I was. She smiled, which pushed her cheeks out and made the blush beneath them look shadowy and wrong. Heat flew to my face. Dating? What did I know of dating? My roommate Murph had done all the dating and had essentially abandoned me so that she could now sleep every night with this new guy she'd met. She had bequeathed me her vibrator, a strange, swirling, buzzing thing that when switched to high, gyrated in the air like someone's bored, thick finger going whoop-de-doo. <laughs> Whose penis could this possibly resemble? I hope this isn't a sh- shock to the trustees and the board of directors. <laughs> Whose penis could this possibly resemble? Someone who had worked in a circus, perhaps. Perhaps Burt Lancaster's in trapeze. I kept the thing on the kitchen counter where Murph had left it for me, and occasionally I used it to stir my chocolate milk. Now I sat down on a small sofa that was upholstered in a kind of pillow ticking. I opened my backpack and began fumbling through it, looking for a copy of my resume. Sarah sat across from me on another pillow-ticking sofa, the very brightness of her looking as if it might stain the cushions. She twisted her legs up and around each other in such a way that the lower half of one gave the illusion of jutting out of the upper half of the other, as if she had the backwards knees of a crane. She began clearing her throat, so I stopped fumbling and set the backpack aside. Already the winter air is getting to me, she said. She turned and coughed again loudly in that parched fashion that doctors call unproductive. She patted her flat stomach. Here's the deal, she said again. We are adopting. Adopting? A baby. We are adopting a baby in two weeks. That's why we're advertising for a sitter, she said. We'd like to line someone up ahead of time for some regular hours. I didn't know anything about adoption, I'd known only one adopted girl when I was growing up, Becky Suslutch, spoiled and beautiful, and at 16 having an affair with a must and handsome student teacher that I myself had a crush on. In general, I thought of adoption much as I thought of most things in life, uneasily. Congratulations, I murmured now to Sarah. Was that what one said? Sarah's face lit up gratefully, as if no one had yet said an encouraging word to her on the matter. Why, thank you, she said. I have so much work at the restaurant that everyone I mention this to acts peculiar and quiet and so meanly worried for me. They say, really? And then all this tension springs to their mouths. They think I'm too old. I accidentally nodded. (laughs) I had no idea conversationally where we were. I searched, as I too often found myself having to do, to find a language or even an octave in which to speak. I wondered how old she was. I own Le Petit Moulin, Sarah Brink added. Le Petit Moulin. I knew of it a little. It was one of those expensive restaurants downtown, every entree freshly hairy with dill, every soup and dessert dripped upon as preciously as a pollock. 
Fillets and cutlets sprinkled with lavender dust once owned by pixies, restaurants to which students never went except if newly pinned to a fraternity boy or dating an assistant dean or hosting a visit from their concerned suburban parents. I knew Le Petit Moulin served things that sounded like instruments, timbales, quenelles. God only knew what they were. I had once tried to study the menu in the lit window near the entrance, and as I stared at the words, the sting of my own exile had moistened my eyes. There's a kind of through line here that I, I kind of fudge by adding the word now. Now, Sarah Brink laughed. A quasi-laugh, a socially constructed laugh, a collection of predetermined notes like the chimes of a doorbell. So here's the job description, she said, when the laugh was through. Walking home, I passed a squirrel that had been hit by a car. Its soft, scarlet guts spilled out of its mouth as if in a dialogue balloon, and the wind gently blew the fur of its tail as if it were still alive. I tried to remember everything Sarah Brink had said to me. It was a mile home to my apartment, so I replayed long snippets of her voice, the cold air was the sort that bullied a walker into mental muteness. This is an incredibly, incredibly important position for us, even if we are hiring at the last minute. If we hire you, we would like you to be there with us for everything from the very first day. We would like you to feel like part of our family, since, of course, you will be part of it. I tried to think of who Sarah Brink reminded me of, though I was sure it wasn't anyone I'd actually met. Probably she reminded me of a character from a television show I'd watched years before, but not the star, definitely not the star, more like the star's neat-nick roommate or the star's kooky cousin from Cleveland. I knew even once she had a baby, she would never be able to shake the anti-mame quality from her mothering. There were worse things, I supposed. In the morning, I woke up in a blaze of white sun. I had neglected to pull the shades, and it had snowed in the night. The morning rays reflected off the snow on the sills and on the low-adjacent roof, setting the room on fire with daylight. I tried not to think about my life. I did not have any good, solid plans for it long term. No bad plans either, no plans at all. And the lostness of that, compared with the clear ambitions of my friends, sometimes shamed me. Other times in my mind, I defended such a condition as morally and intellectually superior. My, my life was open and ready and free, but that did not make it any less lonely. I got up, trudged barefoot across the cold floor, and made a cup of coffee with a brown plastic Melita filter and a paper towel dripping it into a single ceramic mug that said Moose Timber Lodge. Murph had gone there once for a weekend with her new boyfriend. The phone rang before I'd had time to let the coffee kick in and give me words to say. Nonetheless, I picked up the receiver. Hi, is this Tassie, said the newly familiar voice. Yes, it is. I frantically gulped at my coffee. What time was it? Too soon for calls. This is Sarah Brink. Did I wake you up? I'm sorry. I'm calling too early, aren't I? Oh, no, I said, lest she think I was a shiftless bum. Better a lying sack of shit. 
I didn't know whether I'd left a message on the correct machine or not. I wanted to get back to you as soon as possible before you accepted an offer from someone else. Little did she know. I've talked it over with my husband, she said, and we'd like to offer you the job. Could she even have called the references I'd listed? Had there been enough time to? Well, thank you, I said. We'll start you at $10 an hour with the possibility of raises down the line. Okay. I sipped at the coffee, trying to wake my brain. Let the coffee speak. The problem is this. The job starts today. Today? I sipped again. Yes, she said, I'm sorry. We're going to Kronenkey to meet the birth mother, and we'd like you to come with us. Yes, well, I think that would be okay. So you accept the position? Yes, I guess I do, I said. You do? You can't know how happy you've made me. Really, I asked, all the while wondering, where's the new employee's first day orientation meeting? Where's the you've-picked-a-great-place-to-work PowerPoint presentation? The coffee was kicking in, but not helpfully. Oh, yes, really, she said. Can you be here by noon? The appointment with the birth mother was for 2 p.m., at the Perkins restaurant in Kronenke, a town an hour away with a part German, part Indian name that I'd always assumed meant wampum. The social worker who ran the adoption agency was supposed to meet us there with the birth mother, and everyone would cheerfully assess one another. I had walked the half hour to Sarah Brink's house and then waited 20 minutes while she scrambled around doing things or searching madly for her sunglasses all the while apologizing to me for, from the next room. In the car, on our way up, I sat next to her in the front seat since her husband, Edward, whom, strangely, I still hadn't met, couldn't get out of some meeting or other and had apparently told Sarah to go ahead without him. Marriage, Sarah sighed, as if I had any idea what that meant. Yet it did seem odd that he wasn't with her, and odder still that I seemed to be going in his stead. But I nodded. He must be busy, I said, giving Edward the benefit of the doubt, though I was beginning to think Edward might be, well, an asshole. <laughs> I looked sideways at Sarah, who was hatless, with a long cranberry scarf coiled twice about her neck. The sun caught the shiny artifice of her hair, as well as the stray tufts of white lint on her peacoat, still especially with the sunglasses in winter, something I had seldom seen before. She looked glamorous. I was not especially used to speaking to adults, so I felt comfortable just being quiet with her. And soon she turned on the classical music station and we listened to Mazorksky's pictures at an exhibition and night on Bald Mountain for the entire ride. They've told me the birth mother is very beautiful, said Sarah at one point. And I said nothing, not knowing what to say. We waited in the second booth inn at Perkins, Sarah and I sitting on the same side to leave the seat opposite fully open for the two people who were waiting, we were waiting for. Sarah ordered coffee for us both, and I sat looking over the plasticized Perkins menu with its little pictures of golden french fries laid out on frilly, verdant lettuce next to tomato slices the size of small clocks. What would I order? There was the bread bowl salad, the Heartland omelet, and various bottomless beverages for the greedy and thirsty. I feared I was both. Sarah ordered Perkins' bottomless pot of coffee for the entire table, and the waitress went away to bring it. Oh, look, 
Here they are, murmured Sarah, and I looked up to see a heavily made-up middle-aged woman in a deep pink parka, holding the arm of a girl probably my age, maybe younger, who was very pregnant, very pretty, and when she smiled at us, even from that distance, I could see that she had scarcely a tooth in her head. We stood and moved toward, toward them. The girl wore an electronic bracelet on her wrist, but was clearly unembarrassed by this because she energetically thrust her hand out from her sleeve in greeting. I shook it. Hi, she said to me. I wondered what she had done and why the bracelet was not around her ankle instead. Perhaps she had been very, very bad and had both. Hi, I replied, trying to smile companionably and not stare at her stomach. This is the mother here, the woman in the pink parka told the pregnant girl, indicating Sarah. Sarah Brink, Amber Bowers. Hi, it's so wonderful to meet you, Sarah grasped Amber's hand warmly and shook it for too long. Amber kept turning back, hopefully to me, as if she were as baffled as I was to be in the company of these mysterious middle-aged women. I'm Tassie Kelchin, I said quickly, shaking Amber's penalized hand yet again. The delicate knobs of her wrists and her elegant fingers were in strange contrast to her toothlessness and the hard plastic parole band. I'm going to work for Sarah as a child care provider, I said. And I'm Letitia Gerlich, said the adoption agency woman, shaking my hand, though not letting go of Amber's coat sleeve as if she might escape. Amber did have the face, if not currently the body, of someone who perhaps more than once had suddenly made a run for it. Hey, Letitia, said Sarah, who threw her arms around her as if they were old friends. Here, come sit down, she added. The waitress is bringing coffee. After that, things moved with swiftness and awkwardness, both like something simultaneously strong and broken. We hung up coats, we ordered, we ate, we made chit-chat about the food and the snow. Oh, there's my probation officer, Amber said, giggling. Her face brightened as if she had a little crush on him. I think he sees us. He's sitting right over there by the window. We looked up to see the probation officer, his blue jacket still on, his bottomless Diet Coke stacked with ice, a going-to-seed hunk in a windbreaker. The world seemed full of them. We all just stared to buy ourselves time, I suppose, and to avoid the actual question of Amber's crimes. Letitia began to speak to Sarah on Amber's behalf. Amber is happy to meet Tassie as well as you, Sarah. Here Amber looked across at me and rolled her eyes as if we were two girls out with our embarrassing mothers. I'd been noticing Amber's face, which was as lovely as advertised, but sassy, with a strange electricity animating it, and with the missing teeth, she seemed like a slightly educated hillbilly or an infant freak. Her hair was gingery blonde, shoulder length, as straight and coarse as a horse's tail. Amber's wondering, of course, about your religious plans for the baby. She's very interested in having the baby baptized Catholic, aren't you, Amber? Oh, yeah, said Amber. That's the whole point of this. She pulled out the front of her bulging, stretchy sweater and let it snap back. And, of course, she would hope you would have the child confirmed as well when the time came. We could do that, said Sarah. We could definitely do that. Were you raised Catholic, asked Amber? 
Ah, uh, well, no, but my cousin's worse, said Sarah, as if this solved everything. Letitia, nervous about the sticky parts of a deal, said cheerily, The birth father is white. Did I mention that to you? I did, didn't I? Sarah said nothing, her face momentarily inscrutable. She picked up a lone, cold French fry the waitress had yet to clear and began to chew. Letitia continued, tall and good-looking like Amber. Amber smiled happily. We broke up, she said, shrugging. Do you have a picture of him, though, to show Sarah? Letitia was selling the idea of the handsome white boy dad. I don't think I ever had a damn picture of him, said Amber, shaking her head. Now she looked at me, grinning. Except in my mind. My mind's a regular exhibition. The phrase was oddly reminiscent of the Mazorksky we just listened to in the car. And her mouth, with its few and crooked teeth, bits of shell awash on a reef of gum, seemed a curious home for her voice, which was slowly surprising with its intelligence and humor. There was a lull now. Amber suddenly leaned back, physically uncomfortable. So, where's your husband? She asked Sarah. I examined Sarah's face for the stiffened look of the accused. He's, um, he's at a meeting his lab is having with the university. I run my own restaurant in town so I can make up my own schedule as far as meetings go. But, well, he's at the beck and call of others. At least today he is. Do you think you really have time for a baby owning a restaurant and all? Amber was not shy. If Amber had been shy, not one of us would be at Perkins right now. <laughs> Sarah refused to be flustered. She'd heard remarks of this sort a dozen times. But before she could speak, Letitia spoke for her. That's why Tassie is here. Tassie's the backup. But Sarah will always be around. She'll be the mom and she can do a lot of her work right out of the house. Isn't that right, Sarah? What work could Sarah do from the house? Absolutely, Sarah said. Oh, I forgot. I brought you a present, Amber. Sarah took a CD from her purse. It's a mixed CD of my favorite classical music. Amber took it and stashed it in her bag with the most fleeting of glances. Perhaps she'd had a slew of these lunches, as a means of collecting goodies, which she would later sell on eBay. And I have a present for you, too, she said, and handed Sarah a foil-wrapped pad of butter she plucked from the bowl on the table. (laughs) It's wrapped, Amber said, smiling wickedly. The CD had not been. A scalding boldness gripped Amber's face, then a kind of guilt, then drifty blankness, like songs off a jukebox list, flipped through unchosen. Thanks, said Sarah gamely. You had to hand it to Sarah. She opened up the butter and applied it to her mouth like lip gloss. Prevents chap lips, she said. You're welcome, said Amber. When we all walked out to the parking lot, the probation officer followed. The American flag was flapping noisily next to the Perkins sign. The air was picking up wind and snow. The probation officer walked to his car and got in but did not start it. Amber's face was completely lit up. I saw that she was fantastically in love with him. She was not concentrating on any of us. And something about this provoked Sarah. Well, she said, studying Amber with an artificial smile. Yes, well, said Amber. All right, then, said Letitia. 
Can I give you some advice, Amber? Sarah asked, standing there as Letitia clutched Amber even tighter. Letitia was ecstatic to have a white birth mother in tow, one with a little white bun in the oven, and did not want a rival agency to get a hold of her, or so Sarah would say later. The windbreakered parole officer gave a wave and drove off. What? Amber said to Sarah. But to me, she smiled and said, he was definitely following me. When I was your age, I had some rebellious ideas, Sarah continued her unsolicited advice to Amber. I got in trouble now and again here and there, but I realized it was because I was doing things I wasn't any good at. Look at this. She tapped Amber's electronic bracelet with a gloved index finger. You're 18. Don't sell drugs. You're no good at it. Do something you're good at. Sarah meant this tough love speech compassionately, I could see. But Amber's face flushed with insult, then hardened. That's what I'm trying to do, Amber said indignantly, and tore herself away from Letitia's grip, walked over to what was apparently Letitia's car, and got in on the passenger's side. We'll talk later, Letitia called to Sarah, waving goodbye and hurrying off to Amber. Perkins's flag was whipping loudly in the snowing wind, snowy wind. Well, said Sarah, as we both got into her car, that was for all intents and purposes a complete disaster. She started up the engine. You know, she continued, I always do the wrong thing. I do the wrong thing so much. The times I actually do the right thing stand out so brightly in my memory that I forget. I always do the wrong thing. And I'll stop there. Thank you. That was fantastic. Have a drink. You deserve it. Oh, thank you very much. (laughs) Uh, We could see all the qualities of Lori's work on display in that excerpt, um, which is one of my favorite scenes in the book. There's so many things to talk about. Oh, there are better ones than that. Don't tell them that. <laughs> there are I have many favorites. better ones later on. <laughs> Keep reading. Um, the, uh, there's so many things to talk about in this book. It's a big book, and people were waiting for it for a long time. Uh, and that's actually where I'd like to begin. This book took, Lori, 10 years of work. And I guess my first question is, uh, how much did the book morph uh, while you were writing it? Or did, did you start with a kind of uh, an ideal trajectory in your head or just a voice or a scene? How, how clear was it to you? Well, I started, you know, it's not 10 years of work. It's 10 years of time. Uh-huh. But as we know, those don't always match up. Right. Um, I started with Tassie. I had Tassie's voice and I had the general situation and I had the idea that I wanted to write a midwestern novel and I also had the idea that I it would be a kind of governess novel you know in that convention of Jane Eyre and Mary Poppins you know and um, and so I had that but of course it changes with time of course suddenly things happen that you hadn't anticipated and you want you want some of that to happen to remain surprised and to keep the story alive for yourself. Sure. Did the uh, opening of the book change as you got deeper into it? Did you continue to go back? Because I know you're a, you're a tireless reviser, and 
did you end up actually looping back and redoing the the opening? Um, I'm not a tireless. I'm actually a very tired professor. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, I have some changes I'm going to make. Right now. Right. I, li I have them on the back. I'm, I'm going to make them in the paperback. But if I'm not allowed to, then I also actually have the name of a Malbec that someone gave me that is very good and very cheap at Trader Joe's. <laughs> so I, I'm taking notes as I go on this tour, but I do have a list of changes. Um, I, the, the beginning was pretty, pretty much there. Uh -huh. um, I, of course I went back and, and there were some changes, but is the beginning was pretty much, pretty much there. Do you think it's easier for you, if you had to generalize, uh, to begin or to end books? <laughs> <laughs> she laughs hysterically. <laughs> um, what a curious question. <laughs> well, they're both so difficult. They're both, you know, these crucial transitional yeah. pivots. Which is more difficult? Yeah. Um, well, you can begin a million books. You can't finish a million. Um, you can start any number of books that, you know. I don't know. I think, and, but finishing is hard because letting go is hard. Letting go is very hard. Yeah. Did you have That's what the, that Malbec the, is for. Sorry? <laughs> That's what that Malbec is for. <laughs> did you have the postpartum uh, thump after the book? Uh, I did. Yeah. I did. I'm still having it. You know, people don't understand that when you write a novel, especially when you sit with a long book, uh, you develop this kind of metabolic attachment to the characters. They are really in your head. Uh, it's not, uh, they're not outside you, they're inside you. And... Uh, you experience the same sort of separation anxiety from them that you would from a dear friend when the book is done. You really do. It sounds, it sounds really sick, though, to say that. <laughs> it's a trade sounds, secret. Now you guys are in. You know, what we, we used to call that when I was growing up in upstate New York, we used to call that really mental. <laughs> but you, you get attached to this imaginary yeah. world and this imaginary character. Although somebody said to me recently, well, isn't she, you know, now that you've finished, isn't she still with you in your mind? And actually, she isn't, and that's why I miss her. She's, so she's sort of in the book now, completely. And a little bit like I Dream of Jeannie. You know, she's in this box. Yes, yes, <laughs> like the ashes. Of <laughs> yeah, something. She's in there, but, you, you know, if you open it up, she'll be there. She'll but, pop, pop out. Right. Um, I read a curious quote uh, in an interview uh -oh. you did with Don Lee 10 years ago. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> uh that's another uh, <laughs> phrase I'll never hear without remembering uh, your book. Uh, you said, apropos of this book, just beginning it, you said, it's actually about hate. It's oh. hard to get in the same room with it. It may not be a book that it is possible for me to write. Was that just an intentionally provocative thing that you said, or...? I'm sure that was. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I'm not sure what book I was talking about back then, because ah. that was a long time ago. Right. Right. And I'm not sure I had Tassie quite down at that point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think, I, you know, I really can't remember yeah. what book I was referring to. But I was referring to some early attempt at this. I mean, initially I had something going in the third person and, and there were a lot of sisters and you know it was and then I, I started to tell people it was also about chores 
They I've would say, what's your, what's your new novel about? And I would say, it's about chores. <laughs> I think it's a really overlooked subject in American literature. <laughs> I would say things like that. There, there are some chores there in here. There are some chores there in there, some definitely. chores. Um, but um, I, di- I didn't have the book, the beginning of the book in place yet. Right, When right. I said that to Don Lee. So during the 10 years, did you take detours and deviate into other projects and then come back refreshed from having, uh, you know, marinated your mind elsewhere? <laughs> Mar- <laughs> marinated my mind elsewhere? <laughs> what do we refer to? <laughs> it's the alcohol. <laughs> um, well, you know, I was teaching. This is, this is where I go into my hysterical defensive posture. I, you know, I was teaching. I was raising a kid. I'm a single mom. Um, anyone else out there doing that? <laughs> and writing a book that anyone wants to read? I mean, it's really hard to find people who, you know, are doing all of that. Right. And, and right. I am not one to, you know, know how to do that well at all. You did it wonderfully. No, I didn't. No, you I didn't. did it terribly. Really? You should see my kid. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm not even going to speak about the house. The house is a mess. Uh, no, actually, my kid is terrific. Of my kid's he is. terrific, but he's, um, it's, you know, it's, it's hard. Yeah, it's of course, very it's hard. very, very hard. Let's um, talk about something in the book that really struck me. You've been quoted as saying, I like both the tidy and untidy ways people have of saying things, the self-interruptions, the mid-syntax blasts of inspiration, the great mess and beauty of trying to speak. Certainly dialogue is an absolute requirement for all novelists, but I think Laurie's probably got the finest ear for dialogue of any contemporary American writer I know. Uh, and one of the things that I like about... <laughs> Keep drinking, huh? <laughs> Therein lies truth. Um, one of the things I like is your sensitivity to class variations in, in the dialogue. And in A Gate at the Stairs, there's a remarkable recurring series of uh, pitch-perfect discussions of educated white people talking about race. And Laurie is casted as something overheard by the narrator, which uh, does away with the need for all the sort of narrative superstructure of he said, she said, and atmosphere and stuff like that. It's just the words. It's just the, the, the voices. And it's an extraordinary piece of, of writing. How did that come about, that series of things? I mean, is that the, the uh, accumulation of, of being in an academic environment for 25 years and listening hard? I don't know. I don't really think of it as academic speak, but a lot of readers have thought of it as that. And I guess it does contain some of that. It's, it's just a mish, you know, a Greek chorus mishmash of um, interracial families sort of right. talking about whatever pops into their head. You know, it's, it's kind of a support group of sorts. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's meant, you know, it's meant as that, the kinds of little meetings of communities that occur when people feel sort of stranded in the larger community. Now, a lot of things people are saying are kind of nutty and crazy and silly and drunk and offensive. And then other times, there's ways of tucking in little anecdotes in that, in those spoken remarks that are really startling and true. Um, 
and it was a way of getting that kind of material in without having to spend a lot of time with other people and dramatizing them. They would just be told as anecdotes and they would float up and Tassie would hear them. Yes, it was extremely effective. I mean, really, it's kind of cut through so much of the editorializing about race in America and went right to the actual experiential core of, of, of people thinking about it. Um, the, Tassie, the narrator of Gate of the Stairs, is 20 years old. I love that age choice because in your words, quote, there is the stare of the child combined with the meaning assigned to it by a more adult brain. In a way, she gets to have her cake and eat it too, Laurie, because she's able to employ the freshness of perception of a child and the, and the power of, a, of an adult. Did you know from the start that she would be 20 when, you, when her voice came to you? Was it 20? Or did you work and write your way into that? Well, the, well, the voice is a little older. The voice is the voice of someone looking older, back on looking 20. back. Right to when she was 20. Right. I mean, I think one of the models I had for that would be Sylvia Plath's The Bell Jar, which, you know, the, the main, it's narrated in the first person by someone who's about 28, 29, right. talking about the year she was 20. And that's, you know, so I had that kind of narrative voice in mind uh-huh. as well. Esther and, Greenwood. Right. And 20 is not a kid. It's, it, it's, right. you know, it's, it's really a grown-up. It's not the same as 15. Right. 20 is really grown-up. But isn't 15 about... Your, your son, you told me, is 15. Isn't that about the age where the child is really beginning to spy into adulthood over the cell, oh, seeing deeply in? They'd start that much earlier. You think? Maybe my stepsons are a little slower. No, they're spying. They're just not talking about it yet. <laughs> then they get to be teenagers, and then they'll say... I remember when I was two and you blah, blah, blah. They, they, they're, you know, yeah. it's all registering. <laughs> but they don't have words for it. I mean, I think to some extent that's what 20-year-olds contain. They have, they have absolutely adult perceptions and their right. brains are really, really sharp. I mean, I teach at a university, so I know how smart 20-year-olds are. But they can be shut down among adults a little bit and a little hidden. Sure. Um, and so they can seem stupider than they are. Well, it's also, I think, often protective coloration. It's protective, right. Uh, right. You mentioned that you're um, a, a teacher and you've been teaching for a long time. In an earlier story of yours published 20 years ago called You're Ugly Too, gotta love the title, uh, you wrote, quote, her students were by and large good Midwesterners, spacey with estrogen from large quantities of meat and cheese. They shared their parents' their parents' suburban values. Their parents had given them things, things, things. They were complacent. They had been purchased. They were armed with a healthy vagueness about anything historical or geographic. They seemed actually to know very little about anything, but they were extremely good-natured about it. <laughs> so the question then occurs, have students changed much since then? Did 9-11, for example, make them a tiny bit more international, or are we basically in the same old, same old? The admissions standards changed at the University of Wisconsin in, in, at that time. That's actually true. Um, no, that... that that description, of course, comes out of the mood of a particular story and a particular character. It's not meant to be general. It's not meant to be the author's opinion. Right. right. Um, it's always dangerous to do. <laughs> to assign that to you. 
But it is, you know, it is a story that's about opinions, you know, and that's the, the joke that you're ugly too comes from the idea of what is the second opinion? Well, you're ugly too. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it comes out of a mood, out of a, out of a sense of, um, I don't know, there's a lot of opinions that I don't currently hold, but that that character does sure. in that story. Do you think that students have become more sophisticated in the last 20 years? More sophisticated? Well, what do you mean? More worldly. More aware of there being something beyond the continental United States, for example. I don't know. Um, do you? Well, I think 9-11 did something semi-permanent to the, the, the psyche. Uh, on the other hand, you know, maybe kids coming into college right now have already uh, shrugged that off. I don't know. I don't know either. I mean, it does seem like things change a lot. I'm, right now, I'm very impressed with the kids at the University of Wisconsin. They're very... I don't know. They're very. They're just very smart and interested and optimistic and uh-huh. and they they're you know they do tend to want to do more volunteer work and everything right. than, than kids in the eighties did. Right. That's part of the new Obama volunteerism right. spirit that's in the air. I think. You teach creative writing there, right? I do. And you've done it for a long time. Can you address a little bit? The, what is your? How do you conceive of your role, ideally, in the in the formation of uh, of talent? Oh, I have no role in the formation of talent. In the expression of talent. <laughs> how about that? Um, talent is pretty widespread. The kids kind of come, as you know, you've taught. I mean, there, there's a lot of people who have talent. The idea. I suppose with teaching is to that you're a coach, you're an editor, right. you're you're giving them things to read. You're also seeing, you know, with each individual, which is why the classes are kept small, what each person might need. I mean, some some students need to be sort of bucked up and encouraged, and others need to be smacked around a little bit. <laughs> um, others need to be pushed a little, and you have to kind of see how far you can push them without... Breaking them. Without making them burst into tears. Right. So you have to be a little careful. But you have to... You know, each, each student needs a little something different. Sure, sure. Um, changing gears a little bit. Uh, you know, I, um, I love your language. Uh, I can't say that enough. Uh, and one of the things I was curious about is that uh, whether or not you were ever interested in being a poet. Did you write poetry? Did you originally have a romance of poetry? Do you read contemporary poetry? Oh, yeah. I mean, I was... When I was 19, um, I decided I was a poet. I decided that fiction writing was done. You know, that was... <laughs> Tired and over. That was so pedestrian. <laughs> and that I was going to ascend to like the real work of the universe, which was writing poetry. And I didn't write anything that was any good. But By whose si- judgment? By yours? By or? anyone's, including mine. But since I was editor of the literary magazine at my college, I published them anyway. <laughs> <laughs> they are terrible. Um, but eventually I learned that I was interested in language, and that's not the same as being a poet, that you can be interested in language and and bring that interest to your prose style and to your voice, 
your prose voice, but I never wrote anything that was objectively a poem. Hmm. Who do you feel, um, who's, who's the, the poet or poets who really move you among contemporaries? Um, oh, I don't know. You're not, now you're stumping me. Okay. No I, just, I just was reading C.K. Williams recently. And, uh-huh. and he was, actually he gave a reading from a poem that I just thought was so beautiful. Um, but there are, there are a lot of people. Yeah. Another and I pre- do, you know, Tassie likes poetry and she writes really bad songs and writes some really bad poems as well that are included in the book. I wonder where I got those. <laughs> um, who could have written them? But um, she, she likes Sylvia Plath. I, I do too. Yes. I mean, it's really astounding to go back and look at Plath's work, which was... She stands up completely. And she was dead at 30, you know. I mean, she was writing this in her 20s. It's just astounding stuff. Right. Even Lowell, in his introduction, says he can't understand this brief, unbelievable flowering, you know, that she had, where she was just white hot. Right. Another question about language. Um, You're a writer who writes from both sides of the language, who gives the impression of watching the language generate itself in your own mind and commenting wittily on the process while it's happening. This reminded me in a very different way of uh, Donald Barthelme, who's a fantastic prose magician, a personal favorite of mine. Can you talk a little bit about uh, your involvement with his work? I know that you wrote an appreciation-slash-review of the bio... Slash review sounds terrible, doesn't it? She wrote a slash review. (laughs) And he was Um, bleeding on the floor. (laughs) But it was an appreciation slash review. Um, I don't know. I I came to his work in college through a creative writing teacher who was very interested in what was then called experimental fiction. I feel like I have my back. Do you feel it? You're you're facing them. I, I... I feel I have my back turned to the, half the room. Um, and they're, I don't know, you know, they, they just were electric. They just came off the page um, and were so fun and so smart. And um, so I was, I was very interested in his work as well as some other people's work that was in the anthology that my, my writing teacher had given us to read. And... Um, so I don't know, I continued to, you know, as a teacher to also assign work by him that was, I thought, a little more, some is more accessible to students than others. Some of it's really just a kind of prose, surreal prose poetry and a kind of jazz, a kind right. of verbal jazz. Right. He's very interested in jazz. Do students relate to him today when you assign his stuff? They love the story, um, The School. I don't remember that one. Oh, that's the one where the class is all focused on death, and they have they have various animals, and they all die. Yes. And then they actually adopt a foreign student, and the student dies. It's just, it's it's really a weird story. But they love that. They love that one. He's so funny. He's yeah. just so funny. Um, Writers tend to live at a distance from life, but life has a way of getting in there. Uh, your last publication, Birds of America, drew a dazzling amount of attention. And I wondered, did you have to wait for that blast of light to, to die down, to get back to work, or were you able to work right through it? I have no idea what you're talking about. 
But it's really you got a lot amazing, of amazing, dazzling of, blast of light. That wow. book made quite a, a splash wow. on the literary landscape, didn't it? I don't. Well, I live uh, in let Madison, me tell, let Wisconsin. Me, I don't live in let, the literary. You're the, you're the writer. Let me explain to you that, in fact, it did. It made it got an enormous amount of attention, uh, justifiably, and I, I wondered if that was difficult to deal with in the in the isolation of of the writing life. Did you? Uh, how did you, did, were you able to just easily metabolize that and get on with it? Or did you actually feel uh, a little bit, you know, taken out of yourself by all that sudden attention? Maybe, I was living out of the country when it was published, so maybe uh, I'm misreading the situation. I don't know, you know, it's a collection of short stories, so any attention a collection of short stories gets, you're very grateful for. But I never really th- thought of it in the terms really? that you just put it in. It's just, now I have to go home and, and lie read down. it again. <laughs> lie down and think about this. I don't know. Um, I, think what, I think any kind of sort of public exposure for writers, I think you know this, I mean, it can, it can be something you have to recover from a little bit. Right, that's There's sort of what I'm talking There's a slight invasion of privacy, a slight right. sense of having to then return to your cave and make your work again. Exactly. There's always a little bit of that. Right, that's what I meant. Mm-hmm. Um, on a, in a story, in an early story of yours called How to Become the Writer, the narrator says, plots are for dead people. Oh, I hate <laughs> I was 23 when I, 24 when I wrote that line, but I have seen it quoted widely. <laughs> it's come back to haunt you. Yeah. Uh, I mentioned earlier about the, the review of the Bartholomew, and, and you're a very perceptive critic in addition to a writer. I, I used to write book reviews, but I always felt so bad when I wrote a negative review that I stopped because it just felt books are so hard to write and they're so easy to dismiss. Do you write only about books you like? Well, I always have a paragraph that I'm sure really irks the author of the book I'm reviewing. <laughs> At least one jab. <laughs> yeah, I always do that. I don't know why. I, th- I think it gives integrity to the other paragraphs. Totally, that's my totally. justification no, for it. I think it. that's true. I think that's true. <laughs> so, so I just, you know, I think, well, this is not just some glowing puff piece. This is, I've thought about real. every, this is real. I've, I've thought about even the flaws here. And here we go in this paragraph. And I will tell you what's wrong with this book. But then, you know. Do, have I ever just smashed a book to smithereens? No. Why would I right. do that? Right. And why would you want to even read a book that you felt that way about? I, I just, no. Yeah, no, completely agree with you. You have a, a conversation with the novelist Scott Spencer, uh, and you say, um, I always think that everybody is getting their ideas in the shower, and the people who are writing them down, <laughs> keeping the soggy notes, are the writers. To this, Spencer responds, I get mine a lot while driving, and I have the insurance rates to prove it. Uh, myself, actually, it often takes place while bicycling. In the 19th century, many of the great writers were walkers. I wondered if you had a, an activity, aside from sitting at the desk and drinking coffee, that... Uh, well, the shower, I did mention the shower. the shower. I get, I get a lot of ideas in the shower. It's that rushing... The rushing uh-huh. of water. The narrative of the water. I don't know what it is. Sudden, suddenly, you know, I, yeah, the light bulb goes off. I solve narrative problems. Yeah. I get ideas. Trains also have that same thing. It's something about movement. standing still while there's movement in your peripheral vision. 
Um, I get ideas on trains too. So if you could actually take a shower on a train, <laughs> you could get a lot of work done. I think that um, we might throw it open to our it might be time. beloved audience. It might be time. Are there any questions out there? Oh, there's one right there. It's you. <laughs> I'm going to put my glasses on. Um, the question, I, I don't know if everyone heard the question. The question is just, no, someone right behind you is saying, no, we didn't hear. Um, the question is, where does one get, I'll just say one rather than me, um, how does one get a, a certain level of detail in one's writing? Um, and I think that just comes, it can come from research, as you say, it can come from a combination of experience, research, a deep imagining, deep concentration, and trying to um, and being interested in the language of those details. You know, finding finding words that also interest you and express express those details. But there's no there's no point in writing about something in a general way. It seems to me. I mean, maybe once in a while, but you also want, to, you know, maybe once in a while you use a, some general description to get to some specific description. But uh, I think most good writing and the, the detail of good writing comes from concentration. And you can't stress that enough. It really, I mean, there are people who think they're concentrating who maybe aren't. Um, but if you combine the shower, the drain, and a pot of coffee, and then sit at your desk, I mean, you will come, you know, if you concentrate on the story you're trying to tell and the world that you want to emerge there, you'll get the details. You also take notes. You take notes when you visit places that you think might have something to do with what you're writing about. Um, and you, so that's perhaps the research part. Can I ask you, did you do a lot of, uh, I asked you sort of tangentially yesterday, did you do a lot of botanical uh, research for, the, for this book? Or do you actually know that many plants and flowers? I, well, I actually love plants and flowers. So I, I know more, I guess, than I might seem to know. No, you know a <laughs> Obviously. lot. Obviously. <laughs> um, and I used to garden all the time, but then, you it know... It shines through the book, yeah. But, my, but I don't know. I mean, on our street, there's a lot of competitive gardening. You know, in, in Wisconsin, once the snows melt, everyone goes mad and starts to dig around and, you know, 
make gardens. You should live in Boulder, where I live. The, the, the shrubs have performance anxiety. Uh, well, the, the gardens only last about three weeks in, in Madison. Wisconsin. <laughs> I know, you only have three weeks to garden. That's why you just have to go crazy, um, because the winters are so long. Right. Um, but I gardened more before I was a mom. You know, it's kind of hard to keep it all up. Of course, up. of course. Um, Any other uh, there's questions? There's a question right back there. Um, what do you think? You don't like it? <laughs> there, are a number, there are a number of stairs and gates in the book, and the first one, as you, as you say, is the one that she encounters when she goes to Sarah's house for the interview. I actually think I skipped over that part when I read, because I was trying to move it along. But there are a number of gates. There's the baby gate at the stairs, there's the gate at the airport, um, there's Heaven's Gate. Um, Tassie writes songs about, you know, the gate that is, you know, in the way between her and paradise. The, 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 the metaphor of a gate that it's both the thing that um, blocks ascension and and also opens the way to it is is meant to be in a number of different places in the story. Um, I found myself with that phrase, a gate and stairs, and of course, you know, the conversation that's going on in the... Um, in the kind of support group in, in Sarah's living room that wafts up through the baby gate, through the stairs to Tassie's ears um, is, is part of the um, metaphorical design, I guess, there in terms of a gate at the stairs. But I had so many mentions of gates and stairs that I thought, I have to title this A Gate at the Stairs because it's really about, it's about what stands in your way in terms of getting somewhere, but what perhaps could open if you got lucky or if you knew the magic words. At any rate, so I had the title, and my editor was not pleased. Very boring. She said, the rhythm is all wrong. I said, well, I don't really get, get that. Why? She said, it's just wrong. But um, that she, she then... You know, whatever. We, she allowed me to have that. And it is a boring title, I have to admit. When, I, when people asked me the title of it before I turned it in, they said, oh, you're finishing your novel, what's it called? And I would say, oh, I'll tell you later. It's kind of a boring title. Because I didn't want to see their blank stares, you know. A gate at the... Uh, um, but I knew that it was the title that had to, that had to be. Now, after that, 
I came upon this photographer's image and I just thought it was like the perfect image and again my editor was not pleased <laughs> so we wrangled over that um, she wanted a cover that had crayons on it which made me hysterical it sounds like you won an unusual amount of times for an author I did <laughs> I did. I didn't win on the on the lettering, the le- that white lettering that I feel defaces the photo. But the photo is a beautiful photo, and if you w- go online to this photographer's website, um, his name is Camille Vajnar, um, you can see the photo in its true colors, because it's kind of, red is, in, in printer's language, red is fugitive, you know, it, it, it takes off. And so there's too much red in this photograph. But if you see it in, I mean, the way it printed up, but if you see it on the photographer's site, you'll see that the sky is pink and the, and the ground is greener and the colors are subtler. It's less orangey and red because the red, you know, escapes when you print it. Um, I still, I still like, I, I, it's my first horizon. <laughs> I've never had a book that had a horizon on it, so um, it's strange what writers end up craving, you know, in life. But I was craving a horizon, so I got one. I, I wasn't craving crayons. I just wanted to throw it open if there's any other questions. Yep. Okay. I, first, I thought you said different degrees of liability. I thought she works for an insurance company. I thought, we're busted. I thought, Eli, what have you written? <laughs> Reliability. Um, you know, she's not meant to be an unreliable narrator. She's not meant to be that. She doesn't. You know, some things get past her and she figures them out later. Some things get past her and the reader can figure them out. But she is meant to be reliable uh, enough to tell the story. I mean, it's her story. All the inform- most of the information you get really comes directly from her. As I say, sometimes it seems to bypass her. But she is, she, by the time she's telling the story in her you know, in the future. She's, it's really coming from her. And you have to kind of trust her, I think, on that. At least I did. I didn't find her unreliable. I, but she, during the course of the story, she, of course, learns to lie. But she admits she's lying. She, she tells quick, you know, little white lies. Um, do, do, you, do your narrators do that? Tell quick little white uh, lies? Well, my narrator... Uh, Basis his whole uh, recounting of the novel on a lie, or at least an indirection. So uh, he is really the clinical definition of unreliable narrator. Yeah, yeah. Any so, other questions? Sorry. Yeah.
Um, yeah, I don't, I don't have any good ideas on that one. It's just really catch as catch can, you know. It's just, I don't know how to do it. Do you have any suggestions? <laughs> I'm really, I'm really a little stumped. You know, the problem is your kid is in one sort of stage, you know, when he's little, you know, there's a morning nap and an afternoon nap and you grab those nap times and then the morning nap goes, then the afternoon nap goes, soon they're in school, then you're driving to, and you think, oh great, school, this will, you know, and it's school at first is good, but then suddenly there's a million soccer practices and soccer games and, and um, the house is a mess and you know, you, you have less energy as you get older. I don't know. It's, I just, I like to get that first cup of coffee on the page. You know, that because co- coffee's key. Don't you agree coffee's key? Coffee is my, my God, literarily coffee, speaking. Coffee is God. I don't know how you can be a writer and drink herbal tea. <laughs> I don't think you can. I also like the hours at night when everything is still and, and you know, maybe your kids have gone to bed and everything's quiet. I, and and I, like, I like that time, too, where it's sort of this kind of end-of-the-day feeling, which is a different feeling from the coffee feeling. But, but nice things can happen in writing at that time of day, too. I don't know. I, I don't have a schedule, and I, I, I suffer for it. Um, I never had a schedule even when I was in, you know, a young writer in graduate school. I was just obsessed. I would write all the time whenever I could. I never had a schedule. And I think the people who have schedules and are good at schedules benefit from it. I just, I'm, I'm very, very ad hoc. I just, you know, I don't recommend it, but... You know, you can still you can still get things done in an ad, ad hoc fashion, but it's not the best way. But you, have any, you don't have any secrets for me. No. Okay. We have time for one more question. Anybody? Yeah. Um, do you? Uh, remember that it's a marathon and don't uh, lose your breath early on. Uh, really, it just takes forever to write a book. It takes forever to get the book published. And then it's over really quickly and you've got to do it all over again. So I would suggest uh, conserving your energy. There is no, there is no formula, of course. Uh, but one of the things that I've learned is to uh, just be incredibly patient with myself. Huh. <laughs> Do you, it's a marathon, so you have to pace yourself. Is that what is that what you're saying? Yeah, in a way. I mean, to write a novel, it just takes so long, as you know. It takes forever, and if you throw your arms up in a fit of irritability and abandon the thing early on, which it's so tempting to do in those down downward moments, uh, you're lost. So you know, to kind of stay with the program is my advice. Right. Well, I guess. Yeah. I think time is your friend. I guess that's, that's not, in a marathon, time is not your friend. But, <laughs> but I think time is your friend, coffee is your friend, 
um, you know, bringing a level of concentration and concern to it. Never write something that is not from the center of you. Don't write something you don't care about. You know, don't write something that you think you're supposed to or you think you might care about if you get going. Um, write, write from something, which is a version of write from what you know, but it's not, it's not the same. Right from what you care about. There, I just was going to add, there's the, the story of this young writer who kept pestering Hemingway, uh, what should I write about? What should I write about? What should I write about? What should I do to be a writer? And Hemingway's advice was, hang yourself. Because if you're successful, you won't have to worry about it. And if you're unsuccessful, you'll have the hell of an opening for a story. <laughs> <laughs> oh. That's America for you. And Hemingway for you. Yeah, exactly. Oh, well. Okay, well, listen, thank you very much, everybody, for coming today. Thank you for listening to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast. We bring this to you thanks to Lighthouse members and funders and listeners like you who support the cause. We are grateful to the SCFD Tier 3 for their support. More information on Lighthouse Writers Workshop and opportunities for involvement can be found on our website at www.lighthousewriters.org.